0: Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on
1: Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's, fun PJs for Mia, oh, new bedding for the guest room, and a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.
2: Coming up on this week's show, we look back on the best of 2023 in retro. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday and has been all throughout 2023. Thanks to our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one book absolutely worth checking out over Christmas is the Secret History of Mac Gaming: The New Expanded Edition, celebrating the history of gaming on the Apple Macintosh. On this gorgeous 480-page hardback book, featuring more than 250 Mac titles, including all the classics, SimCity, Myst, Specter, Shadowgate, and lots more as well. Check that out, and the rest of their Retro Gaming Collection at bitmapbooks.com And with our amazing mates at PCBWay Now of course you know about PCBWay They offer fully featured custom PCB prototyping With low cost fast turnaround quality boards And offer services like 3D printing And injection moulding and lots more as well And of course they're massive supporters Of the retro community So get an instant quote right now At (laughs) pcbway.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 408, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the show that, of course, every single Friday all throughout the year has been bringing you up to speed on all the big happenings in the wonderful world of retro gaming and technology. Of course, discussing all the big stories, all the new hardware, all the new titles, all the new indie retro releases, and of course, bringing you veterans of the industry on the podcast for an interview every single week and this is the episode that i must admit i do look forward to actually this is definitely not the you know the filler episode before christmas there have been suggestions of that definitely not the case this is actually a celebration of another year of this podcast because in january we're going to be celebrating our eighth birthday in the first week of january which is nuts
3: yeah and we uh hit our 400th episode as well which was really cool you know um it's amazing that we've kind of done it for this long. And uh, the thing that I love about the podcast is the interviews as well, having them as our kind of our core thing that happens every week, you know, where we uh, we talk about the news, but also we get some fabulous guests on and we're going to have the highlights of the guests that we're, we've we got on this year. Yeah, so that is essentially what we do at the end of the year, isn't it? A little
2: look back on what's been happening in our lives and what's been happening on the podcast. And then we go through some, uh, just a of clips of our favourite guests that we've had on the show as well. So I think it's fair to say, Joe, 2023 has been a pretty wild ride, hasn't it? We've crammed a lot into this
4: year. It's been a, a pretty crazy year. Yeah. We're a lot of shows, a lot of games markets. Uh, Ravi went to Norway again. Uh, Dan went to Italy yeah. for a, a for Shush, for Shush, Amiga show, which, you know, is just crazy that we managed to do these things. And, Obviously, you know, I just wanted to say we wouldn't be able to do it without, you know, the community and, and the listeners that, you know, come and listen to us every single week. So, mm. yeah, a, a wild, wi- absolutely wild ride this year. Yeah, it has been. And, of course, I think the biggest thing in terms of, you know, surrounding
2: the podcast has been that we've uh that, that little project that we started at the end of last year is uh, almost at an end i know you were uh, quite late last night <laughs> packaging up books
4: <laughs> yeah a crazy day yesterday the uh the books that which for our kickstarter uh, from last december uh, arrived yesterday morning mm. while i was at work unexpectedly um <laughs> <laughs> i had <laughs> um they are absolutely amazing um but yeah a uh, massive you know whatever tonne lorry it is uh turned up at the end of my drive with pallets of books and my poor wife bless her had to handball them all into the house can we we show uh, some love to charlie by the way massive love for charlie and then ravi came (laughs) over um and you know helped out as well in the evening when i got home and then dan came and dropped some bits off uh, last night uh, tonight in fact so yeah it is all missions go like you know with wrapping the books up and getting them sent
2: out, it, it, in the it next is like week. it's like Santa's little workshop your house at the moment, isn't it?
4: Yeah, <laughs> massively. And uh, you know what? And, and an oversight from our, uh, our, our from our site was, you know, kind of like my missus was like, "How are we going to present them with the T shirt and stuff like that?" And she's making me like wrap them up really nice and stuff, yeah. which <laughs> so they should be because it's a course. premium product. But I'm like, oh yeah,
3: yeah, should really. Well, so, that's the thing. We've had to think about so many things, like. Yeah logistics as well just getting them bought into another country with you know yeah. um all the kind of customs rules and all of this at the moment and uh, you know it's 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 a bit of a nightmare there's stuff that we've not um we've never published a book before yeah. we've, 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 as we we've not up, got yeah. a background yeah. in it so you yeah. know um the fact that we've kind of done all this and reached this point is is really good but also i think it means we can uh now focus on pushing the podcast forward uh, for the next year yeah, absolutely. So um,
2: there have been. So know we've obviously get new listeners all the time. I did see, you know, cause I put a lot of picture on our socials the other day. Quite a lot of people were. Hang on, I haven't heard about this before. What? Where can I get this book from? This is a Kickstarter we ran pretty much a year ago as now, and uh, mm-hmm. the books have finally been delivered. So obviously, obviously we're going to make sure that all the backers of the Kickstarter um, get their copy first, and then there should be some uh, extra copies in the new year, and uh, we should have some eBooks to sell on the website as well. So if you didn't get one, um, good places to follow us are just on our social media channels. And of course, if you're a if you're patron backer as well, we'll let our patrons know first as well if there's any extra stock that we can make available after all the backers have got their copies. So uh, very exciting time at the end of the year. And obviously, we're trying our very best to get them out to our backers, you know, hopefully before Christmas. And we can't promise, because obviously, you know, Christmas delivery is a bit crazy. But if we can do it, we will.
3: Yeah, I was thinking, guys, like, do you think this year is the year that We've had the most retro stories. I've not found a, a kind of week yet where I've struggled that much to to find news as uh, I did as much a few years ago. It does feel like it is getting busier all the time, doesn't it? I think when we first started this podcast, it would often be
2: episodes where we'd really struggle to find new stories but now we have too many if anything
4: i remember you know you know when you go back and you watch like you know your first youtube video that you ever did or whatever kind of thing you look back at moments and i remember listening back to some episodes you know from you know 2015 2016 and it's like in the news we'd cover like an article which is like what's the top 10 you know ps1 games of all yep. time? because there wasn't any news so we'd be like what's your opinion on this like article mm. guys Whereas this, like, it is always news. This game's been remade. This indie game's come out, which is retro style. Uh, another, you know, mini consoles, right? another mini console's Another mini console, yeah, exactly. Another event and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it, it is amazing how much stuff is coming. And uh, only announced, funny enough, the, the evening after we, reco- we recorded last week, we recorded on Thursday last week, and the episode came out very Friday. Late. Yeah, So very late for us. We usually record on a Monday or Tuesday. Uh, Sega have made some pretty... Huge announcements, haven't they? Um, Yeah. Yeah, which is just crazy. Like, so we would have covered that in the news, but what? There's Crazy Taxi, Golden Axe, Streets of Rage, Jet Set Radio, is it? Shinobi, yeah. as well. yeah. Shinobi as well yeah. God, Shinobi as well I missed
2: that one Yes yeah. so, I mean that is we did get a lot of messages going are you guys going to talk about it like oh we're not really meant to do <laughs> yeah, on this episode Yeah we're kind of at the end of the year now <laughs> Yes yeah. so, I mean that is incredible to see and I'm sure that we will have lots more to talk about on that topic when they uh, arrive in the new year as well you know the Sega are basically adding modern twists to some of their beloved brands as well so uh, I'm very excited about a new Golden Axe because, you know, that is, I think, my favourite hack and slash game of all mm-hmm. time. So, mm-hmm. uh, of course, we'll have plenty of news to bring you up to speed on when we are back after the uh, Christmas break. Next week, it is going to be the, uh, I think, my uh, my favourite episode of the year, the Christmas quiz, next Friday.
3: Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was good fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would... I was kind of nervous hosting it a bit at the yep. beginning. I don't know why, actually. You know, uh, oh, that was a lot of stress when you the host of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was, there's so many buttons to press and sound effects. I think I went a bit mad on them at one point. Um, just lost control of the buttons and sound effects. But uh, yeah, that, that's always a really good one to enjoy. And we do that next week. Then we have a break. Yeah. Our only break for the entire year, actually. Yeah, then the podcast will be back on the uh,
2: the first week of January. So uh, plenty going on if you're a patron as well. Patrons Hangout is happening tonight, Friday 15th of December, our Christmas special. So if you're listening to this maybe early on Friday morning and you're not a patron member and you want to join us on Patreon, very good time to support us on there and get an invite to our uh, big virtual Christmas due tonight. So all of that going on. But now, shall we have a look back on uh, what an incredible year 2023 has been? Now, we've all picked, we've picked five clips, haven't we, from an incredible library of interviews that we've done. I always find it really difficult just to pick five.
4: It's tough because of you know, like you guys have said, we've we've interviewed some big names this year. Mm. And you know what? And some of the smaller names, you know, some of the indie devs and stuff like that have actually been some of our biggest episodes. Yeah. But there's been so many moments. I've been listening to so many of our episodes today and I'm just like, big smile on my face. And I'm just like, man, some of these stories have been absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I think we've had a real variety of guests as
2: well. So let's get into our clips. Now, my first pick is going to be someone that we interviewed back in the summer who was just fascinating. Now, you guys know that I've been on a bit of a – you know, our interests in retro kind of change all the time, don't they? And this mm-hmm. year, I've been really into internet history and exploring kind of early cyber culture and, you know, the early online world as well. And we had a few guests along that theme in 2023, and um, looking to do more of those in the new year as well but we spoke to a really interesting lady Eva Pasco. now this is an interview that we did back in the summer you're on this one with me Ravi and she set up Siberia which was the first internet cafe in the UK you remember internet cafes right
3: yeah yeah I, I, <laughs> I kind of don't remember them being as cool as this because I was no. a bit too young but this was a time when they had like oxygen bars that were popping up in the city and uh you know all these kind of experimental things but uh This is a fantastic kind of tale and hearing about those early days of, uh, you know, UK internet culture, but also how cool it was. Yeah. And, you know, she used to get the likes of
2: David Bowie and, you know, Kylie Minogue hanging out in there as well. They did all night gaming to like the early hours of the morning. Like a, it was a post ravers, like land party that they used to do every Sunday morning. And in this clip, Eva is talking about how they basically went about setting up the first UK internet cafe back in the early 90s and also how they could have been the 90s version of Spotify.
5: Uh, You know, it was very much a cafe. We had lovely tables, uh, chairs. We had the smell of coffee. You know, there's something about humans. When you put coffee on the table, people talk. And I knew that it was going to happen because I knew that from my coffee shop's experience from Europe. And once you put coffee on the table, people start debate. And also, you know, remember that in that time, your friends were not online. Your normal friends were not online. So if you were a technology fanatic, as we were, you had to go and gather with the people who were of that ilk. And once you go to the cyber cafe, you knew you were with your people. That was your tribe. So people were quite happy to chat and help each other, swap stories, swap sites, where to get things, because, you know, there was no search engine. I think we wrote wrote the first search engine uh, just to help people out in the cafe. And honestly, there was maybe 50 sites on it. You know, that was all. So we had to kind of wait a little bit until things picked up. But eventually people started putting various content that just attracted musicians, attracted game makers. For women, there was a lot of fashion and charities. A lot of early websites were charity sites for campaigning, which is still the case. We still support a lot of charity sites from campaigning. That's that's the upside of the internet.
2: Well, I know you've also been a big advocate for, you know, getting women involved in technology. And I did read that in that, you know, that era, in 1994, less than 3% of internet users were women. So how did you kind of um, encourage them to come in and uh, nurture that inclusive environment in Siberia?
5: Yes, it's it's hard to believe now because today in the online platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, something like 70% of time is taken by women, so completely Swapped the other way, but initially it was quite tricky because even to install internet at home, even on EasyNet, which was the easiest of packages, it was still quite hairy. You know, the modem never worked; things were not compatible with your passwords, with your Microsoft. It was a bit tricky. So unless you had somebody in the family who knew how to set up a computer, you really had to come to the cyber cafe. And I was very aware of that, and was very excited that you know, first experience of internet will be with us, and I felt very responsible to make sure that that was a good experience. So we were very careful to introduce people easily. And it was quite helpful that we had a lot of female musicians. So I had uh, girls who then went on to cre- to compose and create bands who were our cyber hosts. So they were very, very quick and keen to show people how to source music and also how to upload your own music. Once people realize that this is not a one-way street, that you can upload your your material, your art, your music, but women were, were pretty quick. So it, it took a while, but probably by the second year, we were getting to maybe 50-50 ratio.
3: It's it's interesting that you talk about music because um, you had an idea about embedding digital rights into the code uh, uh, that was used by Siberia Records. It, it seems like something like a early Spotify or, or, or one of those ideas. How did that work and come about?
5: Uh, you know, musicians always complain about being ripped off by the recording studios, by the uh, agents. So it's like nothing new about that. And they were complaining then there. And we created this um, solution with a wonderful French guy, Thibaut Jam, who is still in that space, and Keith Thier, which allowed the musicians to record their music and embed the digital rights track, the the signs, the digital cryptography in the music so so that was the business model that we kind of predicted it was going to happen we were probably about five years too early with it but you know then when when the musicians started getting really interested in how they can manage large-scale releases online they started coming back and using our documentation so it wasn't the direction i was going to go but i kind of regret it a bit because i could have been spotify
2: mm, way ahead of the curve there <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So yeah, I loved having Eva on such an interesting story. And uh, one that I've not heard Eva talk about that much before. So it was really interesting to get, you know, some exclusives on the podcast. Really enjoyed that. And obviously, if you want to check out the full interviews, I will link up every episode that we talk about here in the show notes. So you can click through and check out the full thing. Now, who's your first choice then, Ravi, for your best of the year?
3: Yeah so my uh, first choice is uh, Rob Cunningham and uh, he was a a co-creator of Homeworld which was a a massive title and and Homeworld came out just at the point when uh, 3D accelerated cards started hitting the PCs and it was one of those kind of space exploration titles that was just absolutely jaw-dropping and you know the Big thing and a big part of that were the graphics and the way that uh, they used polygons and uh, the little effects that they applied because a lot of, you know, this uh, kind of creating 3D graphics and stuff, a lot of the effects hadn't been worked out. And uh, in this particular clip, they're talking about the texture budget, uh, the polygon count, but also how, you know, like zooming into a craft and using Mm -hmm. those old kind of pixel art skills means you can represent something with a couple of pixels or a couple of colors and and save on all that um space and uh, graphics memory
2: we're kind of touching already you know the, the fact that hardware accelerated 3d graphics cards were kind of coming in but not really standard for everyone you know voodoo cards and stuff are still quite expensive then i mean how did you kind of keep within the the polygon and memory count then was that kind of a balancing act
6: oh my god <laughs> Uh, yeah, balancing act. I'd say is a very, very you know, nice way of saying it. It was more like a hair on fire, mad freak out that lasted like two, two or three years. You know, um, the way we would, the way we we dealt with that was we we had extremely limited poly uh, and texture budgets to work with. Um, so you know, we would we would have to design these ships in a way that. That could be that could be modeled with very limited you know polygons you know which is actually kind of interesting because you know I, I I remember like reading something somewhere about the design of the you know some of the ships in Star Wars particularly particularly the big ships you know like the star destroyers with these giant um, you know triangular shaped things because. It was relatively easy to build them. You know, you could just build massive sheets of wood and you know, plywood and sort of screw them together and then cover them in 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 detail. It was much the same for us on back in the day in Homeworld. You know, we had to, you know, hand bomb these polygons into shape and every ship had a very limited polygon budget. And then as you zoomed out, we we had to go through, you know, um, procedural scaling to to, you know, well, it wasn't procedural actually at the time, we had to hand bomb. Each level of detail as the ship got smaller on screen and further away from the camera. So yeah, the the and you know the texture budget was a really big issue. We had, I forget what the what the budget was for the whole game, but it was laughable compared to modern games. Um, and Aaron Cambitz came up with this incredible method of squeezing detail into pixels that you just couldn't believe it. Like we, I think he called it the sub pixel detailing method or something. <laughs> You know, by some by some miracle, he was able to, you know, put pix- colored pixels next to one another, and you know, miraculously articulate detail that just didn't exist in the texture. So you know, you want to you want to make a hole in the side of the ship, and there's a little highlight on one edge and a little shadow on the other, and it's literally like two pixels that are holding that information, and and inside there's just sort of like four pixels that are slightly different colored gray but from a just from the right distance it looks like there's some you know like a little carburetor or something in there you know and your mind does all the work so again you know massive um you know massive props to to aaron cambitz for for you know coming up with with how how we did this
2: Yeah, really interesting interview with Rob. And obviously, you know, next year is a big year for Homeworld. Uh, Homeworld 3 coming out in March. And actually, if you check back on that interview with uh, Rob Cunningham, he gives a little preview on that as well. So maybe you've pre-purchased that on Steam. Definitely worth a listen back at some point over Christmas.
4: So who's your first choice then, Joe? So my first choice is going to be uh, Mark Tarano, who worked for Microsoft and uh, was a, well, he, he, you know, helped create, Age of Empires, which was a really, really, really interesting story. And, you know, half the episode was all about Age of
3: Empires and mine and Ravi's kind of like a love for it in RTS games. You um, know, I um, I didn't think you had that much of a knowledge or love of Age of <laughs> Empires, but you brought it, it out,
4: Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely loved it. I was doing, uh, embarrassingly doing all my impressions to him <laughs> at the start of I, the show. I did love that. You didn't think I was recording that? <laughs> <did you? laughs> and, um, yeah, but the actual clip i ended up wanting to pick was he went on to obviously worked for microsoft and he went on to uh, help launch xbox live xbox xbox 360 and he was actually in the board meetings where they came up with the idea for xbox achievements discussing achievements and discussing this with bill gates and his kind of investment into you know xbox and xbox 360 and stuff like that and you know i just thought it was for me like achievements are such a big thing in modern gaming to have somebody on the show, which we didn't know, to randomly then turn around and go, oh yeah, I was in the board meetings and they didn't think much of it. And now look what it's done to gaming, you know, over the last kind of like 15 years or if not longer, uh, 18 years, I think. Um, I thought was really, really interesting.
7: It, it, was, it was sort of two camps. So some people really wanted to, you know, add multiplayer functionality and do it right to their game. You know, other people were not kind of not too sure on the investment. And some people like inappropriately wanted to put in multiplayer features that just didn't really work for their game, but thought they needed to have it in the marketplace. So, you know, it's always great to sit down with game developers and say, you know, what's your vision for what you want to make? You know, what do you want to do for the audience that you can't do now and help them solve the technical and design issues, you know, so they can do that. You know, we really tried to, as a, in my technical game manager years, um, help developers realize their vision. And in some cases, that was, you know, creating um, a cool multiplayer experience. And in other cases, it was saying, hey, you know, maybe multiplayer is not a thing you should focus on. You know, that's not the value that you're delivering for players. So it's it's just really helping
4: people, you know, make their best games you mentioned uh, obviously being in the in the meeting for the achievements and obviously not quite understanding how legendary and uh, impactful that would be on kind of like the future of gaming and stuff but one one question that kind of came to mind when you were talking about that then what was kind of like the developers kind of first reaction to like xbox microsoft saying right you've now got to put these achievements in there's going to be a thousand points per game because some games you know i'm thinking of dead rising really took that on board capcom and you know, they went out there and, you know, put 50 achievements in there over 20 points. And some other games would put one achievement in for complete the game, a thousand right. points. Was there much of a, a pushback from some developers or was it kind of embraced straight away? Do you know? Uh, there's,
7: anytime you put something in the TCRs, <laughs> there's there's pushback. Mm. Um, because everybody's at, you know, is at different places in their launch cycle. But I think generally yeah. people were excited about it. We tried to make the feature as as easy as possible for developers to implement. But if it's, you know, add more work and people have already been crunch type scheduled for months, there it's not everything could be well received, no matter um, how good you do. But I think, you know, people could see the value. You know, I when you're introducing something new, um, there's always an adjustment period. But once people mm. got to see it and started to play with it, they were like, okay, this really adds something. You know, I had my own internal struggles with pop-up toast you know the um, little pop-up notifications of things yeah players entering and you know on your friends list coming in and out like I really wanted to protect the experience from sort of the external notifications of the game system so putting you know I always felt my role in representing um, game developers was to make sure we put the experience first Mm. and the platform didn't get too full of itself right where the um achievement quest didn't overshadow what you were doing in the game and what you were feeling in the game so giving developers control over that you know when pop-ups could happen where they occurred things like that was all important to me that that the features respected the primacy of the experience
2: yeah to be a fly on the wall in those meetings, eh? Really interesting. Mark Tirano, So, you want to check out the full uh, interview, of course, you can click through from the show notes as well. Now, uh, one of my favourites this year was um, someone who is a definite veteran of the industry and has started working on games back in the 70s. This is Atari legend Todd Fry. Now, he's probably best known for the Sword Quest series, on the um, the Atari systems, which obviously, you know, we talk about the, uh, the AVGN documentary in that episode as well, which I think was a lot of people's first introduction to that. Basically, this real-life treasure hunt, wasn't it, where there was real prizes? Unfortunately, the video game crash happened right in the middle of that, so it never got finished. So we talked to Todd all about that. And also, the uh, infamous Pac-Man port that he did to the Atari 2600, which um, a lot of people hated on back in the day. And actually, in this little clip here, because you know one of the things about that, that Pac-Man port is the flickering on the screen that everyone yes. complains about and the fact that it's not that similar to the arcade version. So in this section here, we hear a little bit about kind of the development of Pac-Man on the Atari 2600, what caused that flicker, what went wrong, and uh, if you could do it again, maybe how Todd would do things differently.
8: But I was trying to write a display which would only flicker the amount necessary. so that if two ghosts were down at the bottom of the screen and a ghost with one ghost was in the middle of the screen and Pac-Man and a Ghost was at the top, there would be no flicker. Only if there were three objects that wanted to be in the same horizontal region would it then start flickering. And if you put all five of them in the same horizontal region, then it would start flickering. You notice I keep on talking using the word flicker because I was working on that. And I have the display that did that when I started working on the algorithm that would make it so that arbitrated which ghost got displayed when. And that was a very complicated thought process for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. And then my boss said, Wow, that is really interesting. No one has ever tried anything like that. No one had tried variable flicker before. And I went, Wow, why am I doing this? This is hard. And I said, Okay, that's fine. Flicker does flicker, Pac Man doesn't, and shipped it like that. So that in truth, I've gone back and looked at it. I actually recently gave a small presentation on If only Ida on an algorithm that would have just not done the four ghosts flicker and the Pac-Man doesn't, but just would have said, there are two things I can draw, there are five things I want to draw, what happens if I just flicker everything on a two-fifth duty cycle? It would have been a lot less flicker, and it would have cost at least 10 bytes of RAM, I think 15 bytes of ROM, rather, and maybe four bits. The problem with using just four bits of RAM is that you have to mask it well, aside from the fact that I don't think there were four bits free, and I don't think I had fifteen bytes of ROM left that have to go back and do some juggling. There are other other ways to manage the display to the algorithm to actually correctly allocate display slots to reduce flicker to that minimum, uses a lot of RAM. The easy one mm. uses a lot of RAM. I wouldn't have been able to do two-player and absolute minimum flicker.
2: You know, it, it does sound odd as well here in this, you know, kind of the, the design of it as well and kind of the, the technical limitations you're up against. It, it doesn't make sense now. But I mean, at the time, I, I know some of the reviews did give it a bit of criticism that it was quite different to the arcade version. I mean, how did you kind of handle that at the time?
8: Well, okay, so Atari had a rule because back then there was a thing called uh, phosphor burn-in, right? Color televisions, actually, if you left the same image on it, it would burn into the screen, to the chemistry of the materials, to the light-emitting materials on the screen. So we had a thing called attract mode, which would start changing the colors and moving things so that you didn't all have the exact same colors on the exact same spot, particularly in a brightness. So we had phosphor burn to contend with. And one of the corollaries of that was there was a rule that said, if you are not doing a space gain, you can't have a black background with colored objects on it. Because the black background with like white stars or the black background with, like, a white maze or a blue maze is exactly the thing that would cause bad phosphor burn-in. So the rule was, if it's not a space game, can't be black background. Now, Pac-Man itself had a black background with a blue maze. And I find this to be almost very, very fascinating. It did not occur to me that it had to have the same colors as Pac-Man Arcade in order to be Pac-Man. I thought if you had ghosts and a maze and dots and a Pac-Man, you'd be Pac-Man. So I put a light orange maze on a light blue background, as I recollect. I'd have to go look at it because it's like I'm. Yeah. And that obviously did not look like Pac-Man. And in addition to that, Pac-Man, the game had these channels to the left and the right that you could scurry out of and circle around the screen, you leave the right side, you come back on the left side. And the nature of the beast is that in the actual display generation for the 2600, you're already doing unique things at the top and bottom. And it's like specific individual code that only runs at the very top and specific individual code that only runs at the very bottom. And to put channels in the middle, I would have had, right, a different kind of row... Than the ones that have dots and maze walls, it would have had to be, you know, just way more work to put it on the sides and the top and bottom. I put it at the top and bottom. I thought you have a channel that can be used to go around and around, and good enough. So looked wrong. It flickered. The dots were long bars like soap bar the lozenges instead of dots. Like fruit was didn't look like fruit. It's like Jesus Christ, give me a break! Um, I mean, really. So you know, you say that some, you know, I mean, basically, it's one of the most reviled video game releases in history. Let's be honest. There was a tremendous amount of criticism of the ways that it differed from the coin up. Honestly, I go back and I may have rushed the sounds out uh, without adequate attention and i apologize for that i am fascinated by the fact that no one in the whole organization knew that it had to be a blue maze on a black background right if i'd i would have gone and gotten if i'd known how important that was i would have gotten a waiver i would have said pac-man must be a space game it's got to be black and blue it's got to look like pac-man fact of the matter is I thought it played enough like pac-man and felt enough like pac-man that it was pac-man and obviously atari have had an incredible year in 2023
2: you know new consoles coming out so many new retro games as well so if you're an atari fan definitely worth
3: a listen to that full interview with todd fry so who have you got for your next one ravi Yes, yeah, so i've got uh joby otero and uh joby was uh one of the people that i always wanted to get on the podcast because uh I remember getting dark seed which was a, a really dark game um, from cyber dreams and it was all based on um, HR uh, Gigas um, art and it just had such a style it had that early kind of motion capture but um, it's really pioneering as well do you re- do you remember that title yeah it was
2: incredibly well done and obviously like you said you know getting artwork like you know Giga onto Often games and systems only had like 16 colours.
3: Yeah. Such an incredible... Getting one onto the palette on the screen with the resolution. And in uh, uh, this clip, Toby talks about how they were actually like using physical cutouts and uh, scanning and uh, using early kind of techniques to uh, create this digitization in the game, which, uh, you know, now we can just do it all automatically, or you can even do it off an image and... Uh, shove it into a modern program he had none of that you know he was doing it all by hand uh, to create that absolute amazing look what what the process was like of of first creating the art but also digitization because it was it was a real mix of um, you know digitization and uh, kind of hand-drawn stuff as well
1: yeah and that was a really interesting aspect because this we take for granted how easy it is to get images into a computer now but back then It was sort of the early days of flatbed scanners and we had these or we had one Epson flatbed scanner and it could do decent resolution for the time, like maybe 100 or 150 pixels per inch or whatever. But the images were super grainy. So that alone meant we had to spend so much time reconditioning the artwork uh, to get it to look decent on a computer screen. So that's one reason why we couldn't use Giger's artwork that directly. But the other reason was, of course, we're working with the game design. And the game design had certain arm uh, that it needs in order to make the story make sense and for the interaction to make sense. And you couldn't just like look through Giger's artwork and go, oh, yeah, use that location. So a lot of what we did was we'd scan images of his into the computer. We'd clean it up for hour on hour to get the pieces to look More like the original at the resolution we needed, and then we would basically just use little bits and pieces, like tiny portions of the composition, as little uh cut and paste bits that we would then draw out shapes and still that in with texture based on little bits and bobs that we would grab from his artwork. So, for example. I might take like the top part of a skull after we'd processed it, processed it from the scanner and then stretch that out into a tree that's 10 times longer than that bit of the skull and just kind of use that to get some of that Giger lighting and shading and then hand paint over that in deluxe paint primarily uh, oh, nice. until it kind of looked like something that he'd painted but in the composition that we needed for those environments.
3: And uh, the... Was there any video capture, like, of VHS as well? Because, uh, you know, Mike Dawson, the main character in it, um, yeah, the kind of way that he walked, but also they had a, you know, kind of a f- photography uh, look on him as well that had that been kind of captured for uh, when they're actually implanting the seed into his brain.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, all digitized from video uh, of him walking around. I think a lot of that, was actually done on a pedestal, and it was captured a frame at a time instead of video. But I think most of the animation of Mike Dawson himself was captured before I joined that project. So I can't say for sure if they literally grabbed video and then digitized that and then cleaned up the frames or, or had him actually do one pose at a time and then sequence those frames together. So I can't speak to that part that much, but I can tell you, like, the int- the part of the intro sequence where you see him up close and then these giger hands come around the sides of his face and then rip a hole in his forehead yeah. and the alien seed is injected, that I hand-animated in deluxe anime in a super arduous process, too, because you might recall the game runs at 640 by 350, but there was no animation tool at the time that let you animate directly at that resolution, so I had to animate it in little pieces and then send those pieces to the programmers with coordinates about where those pieces should uh, be displayed within the 640 by 350 window.
2: Yeah, I love hearing those stories of, you know, kind of the lengths they had to go through to basically do something like you said that would be so simple using modern technology. So
4: yeah, I love that interview with Joby. Who's your next one, Joe? For me, it's gonna be this. This one blew me away, and it was actually probably one of my favorite interviews we've ever done. Uh, not just from the year, and this is uh, Ross Tregenza, um who works for Sumo Digital at the moment. Who's done the—he's a you know sound engineer. He's done the soundtrack to many legendary games, uh, including Time Splitters Two and Time Splitters Future Perfect. And uh, I just absolutely loved. How he kind of got his story and how he got into the games industry, because if he was actually in a industrial goth band as a singer and uh, actually has quite a, an expansive music career behind him as well. Mm. And funny enough, uh, Graham Norgate, who we all know as well um, from Rare, from, you know from Rare and Time Splitters fame and stuff, was a fan of his music and you know kind of asked him, "Do you want to make a track for Time Splitters too?" And his career just kind of you know grew from there and I just I found the whole interview so interesting and uh I was really torn between this and when he worked on Sonic Team Racing yes. and he changed the uh the ring noise the ring collection noise in Sonic and Sega went ballistic at him uh-
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, th- I think it's very apt as well because uh Free Radicals Studios just shut down yes. this week yes. as well yeah, so, uh, yeah it's, is- it's good to hear about
4: memories of the series yeah absolutely you know? and it reminded me of you know you know 10 15 years ago 20 years ago i probably would have said time splitters 2 is my favorite game of all time and i probably don't give it enough love these days so yeah that's going to be my next pick that's really interesting so how how did you how did you meet graham how did the where's the kind of the timeline and the story take you there because that's that's fascinating because it's you know you sat there playing time splitters with a yeah. cardboard divider and then before you know it you're helping out with time splitters 2 like what's connect the dots for me there because that sounds amazing.
9: So after my comedy goth band Sneaky Bat Machine I formed uh, uh, another band called Goteki which I still do mm. now yeah. 20 years later it's um which is uh, the first band was lovely but it was very sort of narrow scoped because it was just comedy goth songs basically so yeah. Goteki was my my more open ended like industrial electro band sort of inspired by Nine Inch nails and depeche mode and stuff like mm. that and uh, Graham was uh, a fan of my band he 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 liked my band and I was playing at a festival, like a, like an all day festival with a load of bands playing. And I was uh, I was backstage after we played, and someone said, "There's um, a friend of mine here who's, who really likes your band. He wanted to come say hi. If that's all right?" So of course it is. Yeah. So so I said, uh, "Yeah, I um, you yeah, know do the music for Goteki. What do you do?" He said. Uh, write music for video games like time splitters and i went absolutely crazy
8: <laughs> <laughs> Job I, <hit> the floor. <laughs> yeah,
9: yeah he, he was he was doing a tiny bit of nerding and and happy to meet me and i and i massively out nerded him and and uh yeah just yeah i, I really fanboyed on that but um we, we became friends and um eventually they, they started work on well they, they, they i think at that point they were actually already in the process of making time splitters too and mm-hmm. um but uh, he, he loved my music and he thought it would be a nice fit somehow um, for the game. So he said, would I like to try my hand at doing just a remix for the the end credits of the game, uh, which I did. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I realized that was a big deal. I mean, it was a very exciting opportunity for me. So I worked very hard at making it as good as possible. And um, the, the fans liked it. Like the, the He said, like, the QA testers at the time playing the game were listening to it all the time. And it was a big success which led on to uh, Time Spiders 3, Times Future Perfect. I, I wrote, I can't remember, it's, it's either six or eight tracks for that. And so our, um, our sort of relationship started getting more professional. And then over time, I was doing like some sound design for him and stuff like that. And then eventually Free Radical expanded in Nottingham. And he had the opportunity to get me to come up and interview to work for him. And uh, I did and uh, got that job. And that was my my entry into the video games industry.
2: Fantastic. So looking back on 2023 on the Retro Hour podcast and reliving some of our favourite bits of our interviews of the year. Now, my next one, I did mention a bit earlier on that um, I've kind of done a bit of a dive into the history of online culture this year. So uh, this one I loved doing. Now this was with Al's Geek Lab, who I'd say, you know, calling him a YouTuber kind of feels like I'm downplaying what he does a little bit. It's more of a documentary maker who just happens to upload his videos, his documentaries onto YouTube. And he did the most in-depth look at the BBS scene days that is a massive multi-part. I think it works out about like five, six, maybe longer, five, six, seven hours long. So it's called Back to the BBS. And if you want some viewing over Christmas, Absolutely worth checking this out. And basically, in this clip, it's the start of the interview where, where we kind of explore some memories from the BBS days and how they kind of laid the groundwork for today's internet and these, you know, huge communities that we have online now as well. And also, he touches a bit on the uh, the underground scene back then, including those early days of phone freaking. Oh yes,
10: yeah, absolutely. That's you, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's really it was they were they were separate little islands in this digital sea and you had to dial up a bbs and you never knew what you were going to get some of these bulletin boards were what i call stock and those were the ones to avoid really if you if your bbs looked stock if you just got a bunch of text and a really rubbish what uh, and i'll can talk about this later but a really rubbish ANSI art um or, or the lack thereof then you knew you were probably into a BBS that wasn't really that interesting. And then you'd go in and you'd have a look around and you'd see what what the BBS would provide. And maybe it would provide text files. Maybe it would provide some downloads that were shareware. Um, You know, these were all what we'd call the lame BBSs. So you'd have a few text files, shareware games. You know, you could download a copy of Duke Nukem 1 or something like that. You know, the Apogee side of games, that sort of stuff and a few other things like um, mod files, which were music modules. And I can talk about those in a bit as well. But um, you know, you could you could download some fairly rudimentary files, and you could maybe have a a, a chat with another uh, BBS user if there was one online. But those would be the sort of rubbishy BBSs, the ones that you didn't want to use. And then the next sort of stage up would be BBSs which had multiple telephone lines. And those ones, you could probably have a a multi-way conference. Now, the thought of having a chat room with multiple people all dialed in and chatting online, oh, that just blew my mind away. Now, you know, in the years that followed, you had things like MSN Messenger on the internet, and you could have chat rooms in that, and IRC, and all that sort of stuff. But back then, that wasn't a thing. And so the fact that you could have multiple people talking in real time on a bulletin board was just mind-blowing. And then you had other bulletin boards that ran, like you said, a thing called FidoNet, which was just basically an electronic messaging forum. And you could do two things. One, you could send an, what you know was called a mail, um, but it was an, basically an email to other BBS users, either locally on that, that same bulletin board or to other bulletin boards anywhere in the world um, via a FidoNet address. So that was also pretty cool. But then FidoNet Fido wasn't just an email service. It was kind of like Usenet of the internet uh, and an email service all in one. And for those of you who don't know what Usenet is, it's basically a bunch of news groups. And uh, so basically, there'd be forums on all sorts of interests. You know, there'd be you know a forum on Commodore 64s, there'd be forums on art, there'd be forums on any sort of thought or interest that people had there'd be a different forum you could go on and you could get immersed in these you could sit reading forums day and night about different interests that you you had so those were you know pretty popular and yeah then there were the games as well Um, and those the good bbss had a lot of games attached to them as well
2: yeah, I mean, we definitely will get into the gaming aspect of it as well. And You know, there's forums you were talking about then. I mean, I think, you know, my first online experience, I remember spotting an Acorn Archimedes at school that had a modem. Plugged into it in the computer lab, and you uh, lucky man. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was meant to know it was there. I'd have spotted it one day, and I tried dialing up a, a, a service called Kicks. And if you remember that the Computer Information Exchange.
10: Yes, yes. Yeah. In the back of my mind, yes, I do. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a commercial service, a bit like Prestel,
2: but it had uh, loads of forums on there. And yeah, I mean, I, I'd kind of dial that up every week in you know IT classes when the teacher wasn't looking, and uh, I got busted one day. But yeah, it was fascinating just seeing real online interaction, you know, going on in real time, which for me, I mean, you know, that experience you described there, it it kind of blew my mind as well, just seeing life happen on the screen almost. And, um, I mean, you know, when, when you kind of got into the scene a bit more, I mean, did you have any kind of favorite boards that you then regularly visited? What were kind of your go-to boards in the early days?
10: Oh, goodness. I mean, that's, I did actually try and find some files and, uh, and things like that, but I, I honestly cannot remember the names of these BBSs but at the time of my life these things were so important to me and I I'm surprised that I can't remember because I would be dialing them every day but I think uh, what what happened is quickly that phone bill problem grew out of hand and i was grounded every other day you know i was in trouble at school because i was staying up till three in the morning (laughs) dialing it just took over my life when i was about 13 or 14 and i think that the answer i mean there was two ways to resolve the bill issue one of them was to do things with the, the phone network that you shouldn't do um, mm. so kids don't do that. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess these days it's not really a problem because you don't use the telephone system. Um, but the uh, that was one way. How did that get the
2: word? There was that like phone card kind of hacking and that kind of thing. Was there,
10: oh, that look in in these Fido mail groups, like I talked about, there were literally groups specifically for um phone freaking, which was the terminology used for you know using the phone system. For uh, nefarious purposes, include some of it including getting free phone calls, but there was all sorts of stuff like that. And I don't know if you remember the old BT phone cards really early back in the day, the phone cards were totally non-digital. They actually had little etches etched into them by the phone uh, themselves so that they could, you know, it would tell the, the phone card, uh, the, the phone pay phone itself, how much you'd used off the card. Well, you could actually um, make a little score in them that that failed to work Um, and it sort of it didn't work every single time but effectively out of a out of a payphone booth a a phone card one you could get free phone calls with that little hack so we knew about that and BT eventually were on to that and uh, they they changed their cards but um, for a while that was a really good source of entertainment and I would show the kids at school how to get free free phone calls with that
3: yeah, this one was right up your street as well, wasn't it, Ravi? And are you uh, <laughs>
2: you're also talking about the, the hacker kind of stuff? And oh, you know, yeah, I, I love
3: that. Stuff. And I love how the ro- the roots of kind of pay phones and public yeah. phones and freaking and stuff is is within, you know, the video game world as well and how it all kind of connects up. It's, it's really interesting.
2: Yeah, I love doing that interview with Al. And even talking about how, you know, kind of the BBS scene is thriving again today. You know, he runs his own BBS.
3: If you want to check that out, um, I'll link that episode up in the show notes as well. Who's your next pick then, Ravi? Yes, so my uh, next pick is Rolf Moore. And um, this was a really interesting story about how he was kind of working in the comic world. He was also working locally as well. So, you know, there was a lot of reference to kind of places that uh, I've kind of grown up at. And, uh, you know, he talked about working for Core and he he was working on Amiga titles at the time. And uh, then later on, he suddenly, uh, you know got into DreamWorks and uh, got flown to LA and moved over there to work uh, on this crazy project, Trespasser, which was a, a huge game that um, DreamWorks kind of designed and, and built. And we've done some previous episodes on it, but it's, it's great to hear that kind of transition from a, a rainy Nottingham to a glamorous <laughs> Well, tell us a bit about working on that, because, I
2: mean, it was a really groundbreaking title, Trespasser, and it, it was like it was a CD-ROM sequel to... Jurassic Park Lost World, yeah?
11: Yes, that's what they build it as, a digital sequel to Jurassic Park Lost World. And um, it was very ambitious, as you know. Uh, I I was even sceptical at the time. I thought, I don't quite see how you're going to be able to pull this off. Uh, But I trusted them and they talked a big talk. And we had uh, Seamus Blackley heading up the team who'd done Flight Unlimited for Looking Glass. And he brought some of his team with him they had incredibly talented programmers and engineers and artists. It was the most mind bogglingly talented team <laughs> uh, I would have come across by that point. And, um, just the environment, of course, being flown over to LA, all of it was just a, a mind boggling experience. Um, even, even just from when I was in my little flat in London and the, and this huge articulated lorry pulled into our court to take my stuff and my belongings were just put in the, Back corner of this enormous truck, you know, to transport my stuff over there, and um, being put up in these nice sort of apartments by the ocean, right, right near Venice Beach by the ocean. The entire experience was just a trip, and just physically walking around the DreamWorks Studios, it felt surreal, you know. And then, you know, seeing Spielberg walk down the corridor, and yeah, it was just sort of really surreal experience.
3: Sounds like uh, just going into a, a, a totally different kind of insane world, really.
11: Yeah it, was. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, you can imagine. It was such a sort of strange uh, transformation, you know. Uh, going, Quite a
2: change from Nottingham and Derby. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. the <laughs> bus
11: trip, you know, in the snow and all that, and now sort of hanging out in Hollywood. Yeah, really weird.
2: Yeah, and I loved in this uh, interview as well when we talked about the, the famous abandoned Superman Lives movie yes <laughs> on a bit as well so it's definitely worth checking out the full interview at to hear that tale yeah wonderful love chatting to Rolf a bit earlier on this
4: year so who's your next one Joe so for my next one uh this was a really interesting one for me so this is Jeremy Bluestein, um who started his career with uh Jalico translating games and uh he localizing you know early SNES games and stuff like that but he did say back then you weren't it wasn't called localization you know that wasn't a thing when you kind of yeah. like made these game, these Japanese games and brought them you know to the west and stuff like that and uh kind of talking about his story in translating games and living in Japan and then moving back to America and stuff like that was really really interesting but what really stood out for me was he w- did the translation for the legendary game Castlevania Symphony of the Night yes and you know that's becomes such like a cult classic game it's one of the most you know it's such a rare and expensive game for the playstation as well and it's just got so much kind of like meme behind it as well (laughs) and like the infamous lines in it where dracula and richter meet each other and just kind of hearing his side of the translation and and why he did it i found such a fascinating story um and he was really passionate about it and just kind of like it was really interesting to hear about like how in the 90s how the students were all dealt with, and it was by the sounds of things nowhere near as strict as it was these days, mm. and it was a little bit of an afterthought, at, you know, at some at some companies and stuff like that. But yeah, just hearing about that and his relationship with
12: Konami was just for me mind blowing. Back to your question, Castlevania, that scene when I got to the infamous line, you know, I, I I had I must have had a playable version because I say that because I I was aware of the. Yeah, no, for sure, no. I played play the Japanese version. I know I did. So I played the Japanese version, and it's like you get you get to the first scene, and it's like a big scene. It's like Victor's meeting with reading Dracula. You know, throws down that wine glass in that classic animation that you know was it was it was even more you know sort of dramatic than seeing it. You know, it's mm. a new game. You know, and I read the Japanese, and I just couldn't. I couldn't think of. You know, I'm trying to think of good English lines. Really, I mean, I'm in a way, my Japanese brain is reading the line in Japanese and absorbing. Okay, it has this information, it has this feeling, but more likely than not, it's a line which is evocative of an earlier line. You know, when Mm. when when we when we read books, authors choose you know words and you know sentence structures in, in particular ways because it it reverberates for us. But if you just translate something, it's not gonna mm. you know, it's it's just not gonna work. And so the line is just some kind of line like we shall see the results of what happens by who dies or you know, something like yeah. that. And it's just like I I could not and then he throws down the wine glass, you know. And to me it's like it's like, it's just a crap line and I, I couldn't think of any way to do something with it. And it seems such an important and you know, and here's Dracula and he's you know, he's lived hundreds of thousands of years, you know. He's yeah. not gonna just say some throwaway line. And so I, I decided I'll, I'll find a quotation. I'll find a great obscure quotation. And that's what set me. And I think I did a search for, you know, in, like in a quotation book, like they had t- humanity or man or something, you know, I looked, Yeah. I looked up, you know, cause I was trying to find something deep, you know, mm. and I stumbled on that, on that line. Yeah. And I and thought it, it captured his, you know, kind of like mocker mocking in nature. And so yeah. then I used that. I tried to make, the rest of his speech will match that mm. <coughs> character you know
4: so you know once you've done that like the process of translating well, it so you've had you know you've 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 found that mantra if you will that that quotation does that then go back once you've put it in the game does that then go back to approval what? to konami or is it just kind of like you have the fi- you had the final say and it was done did Ooh, they trust well, did they, was that was uh, that uh, trust uh, there or was it just or does it go back to uh, quality
12: well the, the the simple answer is that i don't know I don't okay. know, but I can I can yeah. tell you what I suspect. I can mm. tell you what I suspect was the way things were then and how things would be now. That's mm. what I can tell you. So mm-hmm. what I what I suspect would was that there simply wasn't anyone to read over my text, of course. Yeah. No one no one would be qualified to do it. And it would take a long flipping time. Mm-hmm. And it would just be like, you know, they like it would be questions everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. What does
12: this word mean? What is this? why do you use this? And so there and they have a schedule, so no, it was just passed right along. In those yeah. in those times, there was no LQA, which is linguistic quality assurance. Okay, but now it would be checked over many, many, many times in the cycle. Uh, my company, Dragon Daily, for example, uh, a game localization company located mm. here in Osaka. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, <laughs> we uh, yeah, we you know we we check things over on multiple levels, and then this is before the translation is even submitted. And then after it's submitted, there's a process of LQA and QA where game players play it with the text implemented mm. into it. So if there are bugs or strange, strange issues, it's goes it back to us. We smooth it out. Sometimes when things are, um, well, no, I'll leave that for a different time. But yeah, that's, that's generally what would have, happen now and so mm. um more likely than not it just depends on the client you know some clients yeah. have people that understand that the text needs to be punched up and mm-hmm. some people don't understand it at all and they, they actually will say to you um can you you know make this more like the japanese and we're like okay yeah we'll we'll make your text worse <laughs> you want
2: so we have got more of our favourite bits of 2023 on the way. Going to hear some of Games Master memories, a bit of a sneaking code into certain versions of Windows, some South Park games as well. More of those coming up in just a minute. Now, before we do that, let's take a moment to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and it has been an incredible sponsor of the Retro Hour all throughout 2023. We I want to say a massive thank you to our amazing pals at Shopify. Now, if you use Shopify this sound will be like music to your ears. You know the sound by now. You know what that means, Ravi? It's a happy sound. It means you've made a sale. That's it. It means you've just made money on Shopify. Now, if you're wondering what Shopify is, if you sell anything online or in person, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Now, that does feel like, you know, one thing that a lot of people have been doing throughout this year is either becoming their own boss or just, you know, setting up a side hustle for a bit of extra money. Obviously, you know, the cost of everything's gone up. If you can earn a few extra quid on the side, a few extra dollars, a few extra euros, definitely worth doing. And Shopify takes care of it all for you. Now, it's a platform that is revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. Now, for example, I mean, you know, there's so many different things you can sell on there. I'm actually working with a friend of mine at the moment who um, just, again, is a little side hustle. He's uh, selling comedy Christmas t-shirts. <laughs> oh, nice, yeah. He's actually, he's actually quite <laughs> Good <a lot>. <laughs> Exactly. He's had a load of them recently. And uh, before, I mean, he's trying to do stuff through, you know, setting up your own plugins on WordPress. I know Ravi used to design websites for people. Trying to do it yourself with WordPress plugins and all that kind of thing can be a bit of a nightmare.
3: Oh, yeah. It's a nightmare to maintain. But you also don't get like a shopfront ready point of sale systems. Yeah. You don't get uh, e-commerce, you know, and... Also, you can't have your sales channels like TikTok is something I do not understand these days. But, you know, Shopify lets you kind of go out to TikTok, go out to Instagram, go out to all of the uh, social media, which is really important. Yeah, which if you want
2: to get customers, that is where you need to be, isn't it? And Shopify even gets you selling across all these social media platforms full of industry leading tools ready to ignite your growth, gives you complete control of your business. And the most important thing is you can concentrate on making your products. Don't worry about learning new skills, design, coding. nothing like that. It does it all for you. Now, um, we want you to try Shopify out for yourself. Now, what's lovely is no matter how big you want to grow, they'll be there to empower you and give you the confidence to take your business to the next level. And there's 24-hour support available as well. So if you want to get serious about selling and your business in 2024, as we get into next year, why don't you check out this link right now? Sign up for a 1%. Pound a month trial period and use our link so they know that we sent you. And hopefully, you know, we'll continue sponsoring the podcast if we get enough sales through there. Have a look at shopify.co.uk/slash retro hour. Sign up for that one pound a month trial, no brainer. Shopify.co.uk/slash retro hour if you want to take your business to the next level today. And get ready to hear a lot more of this in 2024.
8: CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.
0: When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in,
2: of the Best Bits of 2023. It has been an amazing year as we continue looking back on some of our favourite guests of the year. And like I said before, it's been very difficult just picking out a few of these because, you know, I think this year, th- the amount of incredible, interesting guests we've had on has just been second to none. But we do have to pick it up, you know, so we just get a few to fit into the episode. Fortunately, we can't look back on everyone. But this one I thought was really fascinating. Now, you joined me on uh, this one, Ravi. Uh, this was Kirk Ewing. Yeah, what,
3: what a great guest to get on.
2: Yeah. Now, Kirk, he's got a really interesting history as well, hasn't he? Because he's done so much throughout his career. Um, I think the thing that we really focused on on this interview was the amount of controversial games that he's yeah, worked on.
3: We don't, we don't get people that often deal with Rockstar and yeah. kind of, uh, you know, getting some information and talk about that is absolutely fabulous. But also Kirk was uh, in the height of the 90s television kind of lads culture as well when it came to video games.
2: Yeah, now, um, obviously, we talk about stuff like, you know, State of Emergency, JFK Reloaded, but one thing that I found really interesting was, you might remember if you were a viewer of Games Master on TV back in the 90s, that Kirk was a regular presenter on there. You know, he reviewed games, I think, in the start, and then basically became... Dominic Diamond's kind of sidekick on a few episodes, because they were really good mates, weren't they? They used to go out kind of... They were best mates, really, back in the 90s. Yeah, they, they had a really show afterwards
3: time. as well, didn't
2: they? So. Yeah, they did, not a plenty. Um, but obviously, one thing that Games Master always gets remembered for is Dave Perry's famous strop when he lost <laughs> on uh, the Mario 64 Challenge. Now, we love Dave Perry as well. We love Dominic, Dam. We've had them all on the podcast in the past. But obviously... There was three people there on stage at the time. We've heard Dominic Diamond's side of it. We've heard Dave Perry's side of it. So now that we had Kirk on, I couldn't resist asking him, what was his memory of the Dave Perry strop from Games Master? i am going to ask your perspective on it then, because, you know, we've had Dominic on a couple of times. We've had Dave Perry on, um, Bandana Dave Perry, the Games Animal.
13: The other Dave Perry.
2: You were there, obviously, during the uh, the notorious Dave Perry Mario 64 incident. I
13: was very much, What near, happened? Yeah. For-
2: what happened from your perspective then? What, what memories have you got of that?
13: Well, I'm a sort of the patsy in all of this because I didn't really know. I mean, I knew that there was some animosity between Dave and uh, the production team. And, you know, Dave is an interesting character. He's charming, very charming on one hand, but he's also a bit of a tosser when he wants to be. So he uh, he had probably rubbed some people up and I, you know, and I guess they decided that they would have a bit of fun with Dave over the Christmas quiz. But I was pretty much unaware of that, as I was most times I was on film and they didn't really tell me much. They just kind of wheeled me out because I'm pretty and uh, I got me to do, you know, whatever they said. I didn't expect to be in the final of that quiz at all. Everybody else on the stage, whether it was Rick or Dave, really knows games and I think their knowledge of games was far superior to mine. And if you go back through it, there's a couple of our firm Jim questions. And, I, you know, I was like, this is, this is great, right? At least I'm getting something I can answer. And yes, I had played Mario 64, but not extensively, you know, not kind of crazy times before that. And certainly, I don't think I'm even a particularly good video games player. I'm not a, I'm not an, a games animal like David maybe is. But uh, when it came to it, you know, I think I won fair and square. It's just, it's just the rub of the dice. And for my money, Dave should not have jumped to the star, and that was his mistake, mate.
2: <laughs> was it awkward when the cameras stopped rolling?
13: It was really awkward, right? And there's <laughs> a little bit after that where. Gave storms out the studio and the cameras had stopped, and it wasn't. Yeah, at that point, no one felt good about it, and it did feel like a bit like a prank gone wrong. Uh, mm. I can't believe that people are still talking about it thirty years later. I mean, it's just madness, isn't it? And I mean, you it's the most
2: notorious Games Master moment, I <laughs> think, isn't it? <laughs> it's
13: just one of those sort of nineties moments that resonates in people's minds. And you know what it's like if you were there. You were there, and even though Games Master, when you look back, I mean, a lot of it is pretty terrible. There is something really fond about it in my mind and uh, uh, it still makes me chuckle to watch, you know, all these days and read the, read the comments from people. I love it. It's funny.
2: So I think it's fair to say we've covered all angles of that now. We, we're definitely impartial, aren't we? Yeah, we Everyone's just had need to hear from Mario. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. There's Mario on the show next week. I <laughs> love that. <it. laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a really interesting episode. Definitely worth checking out um, that chat with Kirk that we did back in the summer. Now,
3: who's your next one, Ravi? Yeah so uh my next guest is a is a recent episode actually um Doug Rappaport and uh you know we talked mm. about sound in video games and this was really interesting because um he was in that kind of FMV period where uh you know video games were were developing and they were having the the original cast put into the video games um stuff like uh you know Starfleet Academy and um i i, I just think it's it's a kind of changing point in video games for me when you get a cast taking it as seriously as the film release getting involved you know previously you'd have like a, a die-hard game and you, you wouldn't have Bruce Willis's voice on it you know um yeah. you'd have someone pretending to be them or sound a bit like them but um this was a real kind of changing point and uh in this clip you know uh, Doug talks about the Spider-Man game and uh having Tobey Maguire on there as well but um you know getting the original cast involved making sure it fits within the storyline and the narrative of the film as well because uh, as we know a lot of these old movie games would uh, totally be different to uh, what what the kind of movie was like at the time it must have been a um, yeah tough to kind of convince people that the video games are kind of as worthy as you know the tv show or yeah yeah uh, absolutely and you like know, getting them on I board
14: and everything in the game and so it's really, it was the final products of those things were really
3: cool. Well, uh, another one with the uh, original casting as well was um, you. You got involved with uh, Treyarch and um, Spider Man was an absolutely huge task. Yeah, uh, McGuire, yeah. Yeah, and you, you actually had the cast from the film doing right. the voiceovers. So, well. yeah, that that must have been absolutely amazing.
14: Oh, uh, totally. It's throughout my career, it's, it's always been exciting to work with. Uh, you know, the real cast from from things. And I remember I directed uh, Tobin Bell from Saw for the Saw video game, uh, yeah, from the horror franchise. And he was really cool too. And it's like um, you see someone in a movie like that and he's so evil and stuff like that, And but you meet him in person and they're the nicest people and such, such a great uh, person to work with. And uh, so over the years, you really find, you know, you have your, your favorites of people working with and uh, uh, he, he was wonderful. He was really cool to work with. I think, uh, you know, with Spider-Man, with uh, Tobey Maguire and Willem Dafoe, you know, everybody has their own personality and sometimes personalities conflict in the studio. And like I said, with the William Shatner uh, thing, but um, the end result is what's important.
3: I was going to wonder about the Spider-Man one, you know, it being so close to the movie as well. Right. um, Was there a lot of focus on keeping the dialogue accurate and kind of, you know, there'd obviously be sequel films coming out and stuff, uh, you know, making sure the storyline was was consistent with the uh, Spider-Man world.
14: Yeah, it was really cool actually on Spider-Man because a select group of us, only a, a small amount of people, uh, were allowed to go and read the script, you know, before the movie was out or even finished, I think. And uh, it was top secret to see the script. So, like, we had to go in, if I'm remembering correctly, like, a few at a time and they wouldn't let us leave the room with the script we had to read it right then and there and they watched us so we had the advanced knowledge of reading the script and and seeing the you know getting an idea of what the movie was going to be like you know before you know working on the video game and that you know ha- having read the scripts uh, the script for it you know really ge- informed us to um, you know to make a, a video game that would be a com-
2: you know an equal companion for the movie Yes, I love that interview with Doug, and uh, you you an improper nerded that about Star Trek on it as well, didn't you? Obviously, yes. <laughs> being, uh, Loyal Trekkies. So, <laughs> Live, love, uh, and prosper. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever Ravi gets a chance. Who's your next one then, Joe?
4: So my next one is Neil Glancy, which me and you did, uh, Dan, yeah, you did. Uh, towards the start of the year, which was a, a real fun one because he started out, you know, talking about his time working on Amiga games and all the graphics he did on some... Uh, absolutely stunning games on there and some of the lighting effects and everything.
2: DMA uh, design he was that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. yeah. Um, was really, really cool. But then he had a really great career with the N64 um, at Acclaim and Iguana. And he uh, helped make the South Park 64 game, which, you know, depending how you look at it, is even an absolutely excellent <laughs> game that lots of people have got a lot of love for or a yeah. bit of an infamous game. Um, and just kind of sitting back and listening to his entire story about kind of like, the, you know, from the very beginnings of the development of that game when they first got the rights to South Park, when literally only the pilot episode of South Park had aired, and then literally they got green they got greenlit to do some like you know small like encyclopedia you know just look like screensavers and stuff like that you know on your pc mm. to then all of a sudden south park was massive within like three or four episodes and they're like boom we need a first person shooter in the Turok engine and you've got eight months to make it <laughs> um and then unfortunately uh the columbine massacre happened and they had to yeah. completely change the game and they had to get nintendo to sign it off and yeah it was just an absolutely excellent story to hear about that game and just kind of like you know the trials they had to go through to get that game out and you know to finally then get it out and it'd be you know a really really in my opinion a fantastic game which sold pretty well so yeah love that one
15: jeff spoke to me you know and he's like hey we've got the south park thing you know um would you be interested in working on the south park game and i was like hell yeah this sounds great um the, the major challenge still was they wanted the product for christmas of that year And I think we were having that conversation in maybe March, early April, which meant that we only had months basically to, you know, design, build and execute and deliver the product, which was insane, right? You know, doing anything in such a short time is just incredibly difficult. (laughs) So we, you know, we looked at kind of what we had and at that time we only really had the Turok engine, which was a first person shooter engine, Turok obviously being the game where you run around shooting dinosaurs which was a big deal on the Nintendo 64. So we are like, okay, well, it's going to have to be a first-person shooter of some sort. We looked at the reference material because the show had started to air on Comedy Central at that time, I believe. There they were maybe three or four episodes in. Um, there was not a lot of episodes for us to refer to. But there was this one episode uh, in the early season where the kids went hunting with their Uncle Jimbo, and it was like, you know, oh, look, it's a beer, it's coming right, at me! blam. You know, we're like, okay, well, the kids, you know, um, with we, we can be, we can see them in the show here with you know guns and things like that. So, having them running around with guns should be fine. And, and until you know, we were running this stuff up the flagpole with Comedy Central and uh, Casablanca, which was the the studio name for um, the South Park studio, everyone was happy at that time. And then uh, Columbine happened. And when Columbine happened, uh, everyone was obviously completely stunned and shocked but um there came down word from comedy central that they're like hey we cannot have a game with children with guns in it and and we were obviously we understood you know this but we were like well what do we do now (laughs) because you know we have a first person engine well i mean (laughs) you know we don't we don't have a lot of room to maneuver here and i remember talking to the team and my leads at the time and being like, shit, we are really in a tight spot here. You know, um, (laughs) set creativity knob to maximum. You know, how are we going to get out of this uh, problem? So um, we thought about it for uh, some time and basically this idea was floated that, well, instead of having the kids, you know, holding different guns and actual weapon weapons, maybe we could have them hold sort of cheeky toy-like equivalents, you know, so instead of having a pistol, you know, we could have a character holding a snowball. And, you know, instead of the secondary fire on a pistol being, you know, burst shot, for example, the the secondary fire on the snowball could be a yellow snowball, you know, that does more damage. Or, you know, or we could have things like, you know, Terrence and Philip uh, fart dolls which are essentially grenades, you know, you sort of throw them in the world, they explode in a cloud of gas. but they're still a grenade, they're area of effect damaging. So we basically um, substituted all of the different weapons uh, that we had in the design with kind of toy equivalents. And then I went back to Comedy Central to meet with them in New York and um, to meet with Matt and Trey in uh, L.A. And I had to pitch them, you know, like, here's, here's how we think we're going to fix this and move forward. You know, what do you guys think? And uh, very fortunately for us, uh, Comedy Central and um, Casabonita were all super happy um, with the workaround. They're like, this is really a great workaround, you know, um, let's just continue to move forward. So we had to scramble to continue the production of the game. It was an incredibly challenging project to deliver because of the short timeline, I believe we had about nine months to make the game.
2: Yeah, really interesting chat with me. I loved hearing about his work on our Walker as well, that was one of my favorite Amiga games, and also the uh, *The ill fated Walker 2. Oh, that yes. never happened. So I need to get back in touch with him, actually. He did mention to me in the interview that maybe he's got some artwork at his mum's house in the attic or something back in back in Dan's Scotland. Dan's going to so.
3: recreate Walker 2 next yeah. year, everybody.
2: <laughs> Watch this space. I wish I had the skills. So, yeah, if you want to check out, of course, as we're talking about these and you're hearing these clips, the full episodes, check the show notes. We've uh, just got, I think, one more each then before we wrap up for the year, before the Christmas quiz next week. And uh, this one was one that I worked on for a long time because he's a very busy man, but I'm really pleased that it came through. And this is at Dave Plummer. Now, uh, Dave Plummer runs a fascinating YouTube channel uh, called Dave's Garage. But his history is that actually he was a programmer who worked for Microsoft for many years. And also did some work on the Amiga as well back in the day. You're probably him from uh, work on uh, stuff like the Space Cadet pinball game that he ported over to Windows NT. He's also the guy that put the task manager in Windows. And stuff like, you know, zip folders are in there as well. And also Windows Activation. He was the guy yes. that implemented that back in the day. There is one thing that is um, really fascinating though about Windows activation, which, you know, hearing that sentence, you'd be thinking, really? But it, it is a way that basically he implemented it into Windows XP, and that is by sneaking in Microsoft Bob. Now, if you don't remember what Microsoft Bob was, that was basically that. It was like a kid's interface, wasn't it, for Windows?
3: Yeah, it was really weird. It was like uh, your operating system was a house. And you could kind of select different items from there, but um, kind of bringing that back into XP is a really interesting <laughs> move because it's quite a failed um, operating system as well, and yeah. it it was it released in 1995. Well, around that time, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about the run up to
2: Windows XP now, and you know, Windows 2000 was released. It's still my favourite version of Windows of all time, Windows 2000s. And then when XP was launched, the basically the Home and the NT. Kernels were merged, weren't they? And it became a product that was based on NT then. Um, and one of your claims to fame, and I've, I've seen your great YouTube video about this, but maybe you can just kind of summarize it for people that haven't watched that video yet, is you managed to sneak Microsoft Bob into Windows XP. So what happened there? Well,
16: as much as I'd like to say, I can neither confirm nor deny the presence of Microsoft Bob in Windows XP. Um, the reality is, I was doing product activation for XP. It was one of the last things I worked on. And there was the problem of how do we ship a set of keys that are tied to the BIOS of the machine in a way that people can't easily duplicate and just post a Usenet at the time because alt binaries was kind of the, or alt wares. Those things were the main distribution uh, mechanism. And so I decided, well, we've got Slack space on the CD. I'm going to make a large file, which in that day was 10 megabytes. And I'm going to digitally encrypt it and use it as a massive key that you have to have along with the CD key in order to activate the product. So if you're going to download a crack, it's going to have at least 10 megabytes of completely random data that doesn't compress. And uh, I looked around for things I could use. And I thought, well, I could just call cryptgen rand and generate a whole bunch of data, but that's no fun. So I went up on the product servers and I grabbed the disk images from Microsoft Bob that I encrypted them with the WinZip encryption and then ultimately with PGP and one other mechanism and uh, with keys that I honestly can't remember today. So. Uh, there's no chance of it coming back until they break that <laughs> encryption, I imagine. Uh, but so this ballast of a large file that was tied to your CD key is actually the image of Microsoft Bob.
2: That's hilarious. So that must have meant, you know, Microsoft Bob then must have been a lot more widespread than anyone realized back then.
16: Yeah, by far. It probably shipped a 1,000 <laughs> to 1 in terms of distribution. <laughs>
2: So I love that, you know, Microsoft Bob, that was obviously one of Microsoft's biggest failures, actually ended up being sold 400 million times, technically, because that's how many copies of Windows XP were sold in the first five years before that was retired in 2014. So uh, I love the fact that there is a little sneaky bit of Microsoft Bob in most people's hard disk back then. So if you want to check out that full interview with Dave, absolutely worth a listen. So who's your final guest of the year then, Ravi?
3: Yeah, my final guest of the year is a guest that, That wouldn't usually have on the podcast actually i don't think we've ever covered edutainment games Uh, apart from this guest who's absolutely fabulous it was a mark brown the inventor of the arthur kids tv series yeah and i thought this was such an interesting angle and uh, such a different episode to ones that we usually do Uh, that kind of looking at his approach uh, to the arthur video games but also how, you know, they were getting pushed by Bill Gates. Um, You know, he's a personal fan of the series. Um, How the interface has changed, how kind of, you know, the technology uh, developed over time and so did the games. And also, you know, this clip, Mark talks about maintaining kind of Arthur's world and uh, setting a commercial balance as well because, you know, you could have a lot of pressure from people to, to kind of maybe sell junk food or or, or, do other things with the Alpha brand, and he always wanted to have, uh, you know, a kind of idea of learning or, or, or creativity with the game. And uh, yeah, this is just a, a fantastic clip. And uh, to be honest, it was an absolute honor to have him on, and it was an honor to hear Joe, um, sing the Alpha theme song as well, because I know at the time, uh, a lot of other video games uh, about kids, there was a huge kind of advertising swell of, um, like you know, products and sweets and all of that kind of stuff going into there. Did you, feel, did you get any pressure or were you kind of protected by uh, living books from that, really?
17: Uh, we were protected. Um, I don't remember anything like that, but it's certainly something that would have uh, bumped up against me if, we, if mm. we were asked to do something like that. I mean, I'm just uh, horrified by the way television has used uh a, a seduce children with animation and with commercials that get them to want to eat certain kinds of things or buy certain kinds of toys. So I had a, a, a natural resistance to that when I entered the world of licensing. I had this contract with an agent at the time, so I was kind of locked in to this world where I was constantly bumping up against things I didn't want to do. I didn't want Arthur to be a part of. And it took that three-year cycle for me to be able to uh, fire this agent and sort of scale back uh, the licensing. So Arthur was associated with puzzles and games and things that were helpful to kids.
2: It sounds, that's a really interesting point there. So obviously you you kept that creative control and you knew kind of the boundaries you wanted to set for, you know, the world of Arthur. Yeah. Um, But also how did you find, you know, obviously making, working with the guys on a video game, did you have to strike a balance between education and entertainment when developing these games? You know, I didn't know
17: anything else. I I wanted it both. I, I believe that kids learn best with humor. That's where my books came from. Uh, there was always some kind of educational uh, or learning element within the books. I had an agenda with every story for kids. And and that's what we did with the television show. Kids ask me, where do your ideas come from? And they, it's so easy. It, they come from real life. Things that happened to my kids would become stories. I remember Tolan when he was about five, he wanted to go to day camp, but he was a little afraid of leaving home for the day and being, you know, in some place strange with strange people. And from that experience and watching him struggle with that came the book, Arthur Goes to Camp. And then uh, my other son, Tucker, when he was in second grade, he wanted desperately to lose a tooth. Everyone in his class, I think, had lost teeth. And so he was trying to wiggle teeth that wouldn't wiggle. And that turned into another Arthur's story, Arthur's Tooth. So, you know, I explained to kids that there are great stories around us every day. We just have to keep our eyes open, our ears open, and find something to uh, start that story within us and then have fun with it. And basically, that's my
2: job. All throughout that little clip there. I'm just thinking of the theme tune stuck in my head now. How hey. about Joe, Joe's muting himself? Is he? I did right go on an here. alpha binge,
3: on an alpha binge after watching <laughs> that
4: episode.
2: Yeah, I thought you muted your mic and you are just singing it loudly. In <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was really interesting. Here and you know the story of the living books as well, and how you know, they've made a comeback this year. So, if you want to work, a nostalgic look back at Elwood City's digital domain, definitely worth checking out that
4: interview with Mark. So, who's your final guest of 2023 then, Joe? So, my final guest. Um, which actually ended up being, so I've been told by Dan, one of our most popular episodes Yeah, uh, for listeners. Um, one of our most listened to episodes of the year was Lewis and Mike from Dreamcast Junkyard um so it's always great you know to have another you know another podcast on so they do the dream pod podcast um which is absolutely fantastic and obviously they do dreamcast junkyard which is the website which is everything about dreamcast and uh, i just really enjoyed our chat with them and just kind of talking about the community that they've built and the dreamcast community um and the fact that it kind of like dreamcast junkyard led on to the first dreamcast book being published and the first kind of full you know widely available list of every single dreamcast uh, game that was out there and just talking about like where the scene is now and what dreamcast has been up to for the last 20 years and uh also just their absolute tremendous tolerance to me and ravi because we were having an absolute technical nightmare on that episode and we ended up having <laughs> oh, to God. record it twice yeah, um, yeah
3: it. no one knows about the the madness that goes on in the background yeah, <laughs> the the madness
4: yeah that, that was a goes... uh, yeah and it was really a rehearsal yeah. And they were absolute superstars. And uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed having them on. And uh, it was just like kicking it back with a couple of mates that episode. And it was really fun.
18: So we've had a, a steady trickle of indie games coming out. I think COVID and, and the lockdowns, I think, just centered people a little bit more. So we saw, as with other consoles, we saw a massive price rise. But with Dreamcast, it was really quite extreme. I mean, you know, the, the prices, especially in America, doubled pretty much within a couple of weeks. It was a ridiculously um quick increase in, in pricing, um, which is always a bit weird because the console, which is probably the least protection for games of any sort of generation of consoles. So, you know, you can literally download games. But yeah, the the, the scene is getting bigger, I think, year on year. I think yeah. there's more and more people getting involved with it. I think you've got more people discovering the Dreamcast as well, which is always brilliant. And I think also you've got a lot of people talking about Dreamcast. Obviously we're on a podcast here talking about Dreamcast, but <laughs> when the Dream Pod first came out, I mean, it was the first Dreamcast podcast. Yeah. Um, as far as I, as far as we know, it was the first Dreamcast podcast. And I'd say if I published the, the list, the glorified list, it was pretty much the first Dreamcast book. It's become a, a much bigger thing now. So that's a benefit to all of us, especially us, me and Lewis, because it means we can talk about the console even more than we already to <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah i will
19: i, I will add um you you have stuff as well like gdmu um and that allows people to just swap out that dying uh gd rom drive from their dreamcast for something that just plays games off an sd card so it's like easier than ever to just dive in and and find some new games or or, or play the ones you you played back in the day
4: that's brilliant It's
19: it's good to see like Nobody
4: kind of like gatekeeping it either, or anything like that, and you yeah, know, yeah. Like such a welcoming community with you know, with 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 things like that, what allow people to just to kind of get stuck in with it and stuff. So, yeah. that's fantastic. So, how do you guys kind of stay up to date with news and developments related to the Dreamcast and its games? Like, uh, you know, so many years after it's been discontinued,
19: I I will say that like over the years we've we've kind of got the privilege, like we're in kind of a privileged position in the sense that like people you know, contact the junkyard and say, hey guys, like, you know, I've got this, you know, new indie release or I've got this new thing I'm working on, like a homebrew thing. And so we kind of get like contacted that way. Um, Mm. So that's like really cool. But I think if you want to, if you want to like get to the beating heart of the Dreamcast community, even before it goes up on the junkyard, I'd say go on Dreamcast, the Dreamcast talk forums or any of those kind of similar discords where you see like developers posting stuff and like people like there's a guy called ian michael who just does homebrew stuff just because he wants to you know he, he yes. made like a uh a, a teenage mutant ninja turtles collection for the dreamcast where you can play all the old games it's just just because he wants to and that's like the beauty of it um so like we find out a lot of that from forums and obviously like yeah. i say people contact us so yeah like if you want to know if you want to know exactly what's going on like in real time just get on one of those forums and find out yeah
2: yeah i love that episode as well i think it just proves you know the fact that like you said it was one of our most popular episodes of the year how much people love the dreamcast so i think definitely yeah. a system that we'll uh, need to look at a bit more maybe in 2024
3: and the amount of games coming out as well and titles
2: Yeah, so uh, that's been a look back at some of our favourite moments of this podcast in 2023. Uh, Can I just say a massive thank you to uh, everyone who's been with us throughout this incredible journey this year everyone that's listened to an episode everyone that's come on as a guest of course our incredible patrons and uh, we couldn't do the podcast without you and uh, hopefully you'll be joining us there uh, tonight for the big virtual christmas party and if you'd like to join us on patreon it's a little reminder that you know you can sign up any point you know on our website and uh, help us see this podcast into 2024 because we are going to be here in january again to bring you up to speed on what's been happening and uh we've already got some guests in the bag for some january. killer
3: guests as well
2: i'm really excited
3: uh, to go into next year
2: yeah so we're definitely going to hit the grand running in january so well uh, thanks again from the bottom of our hearts really means a lot to us here with us every single friday and that uh, we'll see you next friday for the quiz
3: merry christmas merry christmas merry christmas <laughs>